Section 14 of A Commentary on the Epistle to the Romans by John Calvin, translated by Francis Sipson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Romans 9, verses 14 to 33. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. What shall we say then? The flesh never hears anything concerning God's wisdom, but it immediately distresses itself with perplexing questions, and endeavours in some measure to call God to account. We find the apostle entreating concerning any sublime mystery, answering many absurd objections which he well knew would agitate and perplex the human mind. Many trifling difficulties hinder the students of Scripture from carefully examining the subject of predestination for the predestination of God is truly a labyrinth from which the human mind cannot easily extricate itself, and so unjust is the curiosity of man that it bursts with greater boldness through every opposition in proportion to the danger which accompanies the inquiry. When the subject of predestination is discussed because the mind cannot limit itself within proper bounds, it immediately, in the height of presumptuous rashness, plunges into the abyss of the greatest difficulties." what remedy shall the pious find for a scene of disorder like this shall they dismiss from their minds all thoughts about a subject attended with such danger surely not the holy scripture has only taught us such subjects as it is our interest to be acquainted with and every kind of knowledge which shall limit itself by the boundaries prescribed by the word of god will be undoubtedly useful let us treasure the following observation in our minds never to feel the least desire to attain any other knowledge concerning this doctrine save what is taught us in the scripture where the lord shuts his sacred mouth let us also stop our thoughts from advancing one step farther in our inquiries since however these questions will naturally engage our attention as men let us attend to paul where he shows us how we are to meet the difficulties connected with this subject is there unrighteousness with god how prodigious is the frenzy of the human mind which rather accuses god of injustice than convicts itself of being influenced by blindness for paul did not seek for a subject calculated to excite the opposition of his readers but immediately commenced the consideration of an impious doubt which gradually takes possession of the mind of a large proportion of mankind when they hear that god determines the state and condition of every individual of the human race according to his own will the kind of injustice imagined by the flesh is that god has respect to one human being while he passes by another paul in solving this difficulty divides the whole subject into two parts in the first he treats concerning the elect in the second considers the reprobates he is desirous that we should meditate on the mercy and kindness of god displayed by the former while we acknowledge his just judgment towards the latter in the first place he answers that the thought deserves the utmost execration which believes injustice to exist in the fountain of all righteousness and in the second place paul makes it plain in what way no injustice can be manifested either towards the elect or reprobate the very objection without going any farther clearly proves that the cause why god elects some and rejects others is to be sought for merely in his will and purpose 
for if the difference between these two characters depended upon a regard to their works paul would have discussed the question concerning god's injustice in a very unnecessary manner since no suspicion could possibly arise against the perfect justice of the disposer of all things if he treats every son and daughter of adam according to their works it is worthy of notice also that paul discussed this subject with freedom and candour although he knew very well that violent railings and horrible blasphemies would be immediately raised against this part of divine truth he does not conceal the occasion it would afford for rage and tumultuous opposition on hearing that each individual had his own lot assigned by the secret will of the most high he still proceeds and without hesitation or circumlocution declares the doctrine which he had learnt from the holy spirit Hence it follows that no allowance can be made for the delicacy of those who affect greater prudence than the spirit of truth in answering the difficulties or removing the stumbling-blocks occasioned by this doctrine. The modesty and sobriety of this class of divines would merit approbation should they restrain their minds from too great curiosity and bridle their tongues from indulging in immoderate licentiousness in their attacks. What presumptuous boldness is it, to impose a check upon the spirit of holiness and upon paul the apostle of the gentiles may there continue to flourish in the church of god sufficient magnanimity in all ages to prevent the teachers of piety from being ashamed of the simple profession of the true doctrine however much it may be hated and may they refute with boldness and christian love all the calumnies of impiety for he saith to moses none can accuse god of any injustice with respect to the elect for he deigns to show them pity according to the good pleasure of his will yet the flesh finds cause for murmuring even in this case for it cannot allow the sovereign of infinite justice to condescend to show favour to one in preference to another without assigning a cause a certain class of theologians because they consider it absurd that some men should be preferred to others enter into controversy with god in the effrontery of pride as if he showed more respect to some persons than was right let us consider in what way paul defends the justice of god in the first place he does not endeavour to involve in obscurity a doctrine which excited hatred but persists in asserting it with inflexible constancy he takes no pains in seeking for reasons which are calculated to diminish the harshness of predestination but is content to restrain the impure barkings of its opponents by testimonies of scripture the apology produced by paul to show god was not unjust because he is merciful to whom he thinks fit might appear cold but because god's own authority as it requires the aid and support of no other is abundantly sufficient of itself paul was content to leave the judge of quick and dead to avenge his own right the answer adduced by paul is that which the lord gave moses when he offered supplications for the salvation of the whole people i will have mercy said jehovah on whom i will have mercy and have compassion on whom i will have compassion exodus thirty three fifteen god by this very declaration proved that he is himself a debtor to none that every blessing bestowed upon the elect flows from gratuitous kindness and is freely granted to whom he pleases that no cause which is superior to his own will can be conceived or devised why he entertains kind feelings or manifests kind actions to some of the children of adam and not to all the import of the passage appears to be the following i jehovah will never deprive that person of my pity to whom i have once decreed to extend it and i will follow with perpetual kindness that child of adam on whom i have resolved by my purpose to confer such compassion the lord thus assigns the supreme cause of his bestowing grace to be his own voluntary decree and intimates at the same time that he has peculiarly destined his mercy to certain individuals 
for the very precise nature of the language used on this occasion excludes all foreign causes as when we assert our freedom to act we say we will do whatever action we intend to perform he expressly uses the relative pronoun to show that pity would not be extended promiscuously to all the uncaused cause of all effects is deprived of this liberty if election is entirely bound down by external causes the alone cause of salvation is expressed in the two words made use of by moses for one imports the gratuitous and liberal bestowment of a favour or kindness the other means to be affected with pity paul thus clearly establishes the point to be proved the mercy of god is not forced or bound under any restriction but pursues whatever direction it chooses and follows merely its own inclination because it is altogether gratuitous therefore it is not of him that willeth the apostle deduces from this testimony the incontrovertible conclusion that our election is to be attributed to no industry no zeal no exertion and effort of our own but is to be entirely ascribed to the decree of god away with the thought that the elect are chosen on account of their own deserts or because they have secured by any means the favour of god to themselves or are possessed of the smallest grain of dignity which might be calculated to draw the attention of infinite wisdom to their personal characters the word running means zeal and contention let us simply consider that our being reckoned among the elect does not arise from any power in our will from any zeal or effort however ardent of our own but must be entirely attributed to the goodness of god which elects of its own free choice as the children of an eternal father such as have not exhibited either freedom of will or persevering exertion or even a single thought for the attainment of so glorious a privilege there is great folly in the argument that we are possessed of a certain energy in our zeal but of such a kind as can effect nothing of itself unless aided by the mercy of jehovah since the apostle shows that we possess nothing of our own by excluding all our efforts to infer that we have the power either of running or willing is a mere cavil which paul denies and plainly asserts our will or ardour in the race has not the smallest influence in procuring our election those divines on the other hand merit the severest reproof who continue to indulge in drowsiness and sloth that they may afford room and opportunity for the grace of god to act since although their own ardour can accomplish nothing yet the heavenly zeal inspired by the father of lights is endowed with active efficacy we do not make these observations for the purpose of choking or smothering by means of our own stiff-necked obstinacy and indolence the sparks of divine light and life inspired into us by the spirit of truth but with a view to make us know that every possession every power and every boon we have spring from the giver of all good and we may hence be taught to ask and hope for all things from his hands and to confess and acknowledge that every blessing we enjoy is his gift while with filial fear and trembling we earnestly endeavour with all diligence and study to secure our salvation pelagius has endeavoured by another sophistical but mean cavil to escape from adopting the opinion of paul and has asserted our election not to depend merely on our willing and running since the mercy of god assists our powers augustine answers this writer with great acuteness and solidity for if it is asserted that election does not depend on the will of man because it is a partial not sole cause it may on the contrary be stated with equal truth that election does not arise from the mercy of god which is only a partial cause but from the will and zeal of the elected for if the cooperation is mutual the praise must be reciprocal 
but this supposition by assigning election to the power of man involves an incontrovertible absurdity and we must therefore determine so to ascribe the salvation of the elect whom god has decreed to save to the divine mercy alone as to leave nothing to the industry of man the opinion entertained of this passage by some has no more plausibility than the former interpretations for they consider it to be spoken in the character of the impious since what consistency is there in perverting passages of scripture which clearly assert the righteousness of god to the purpose of upbraiding him with tyranny is it probable that paul would have patiently suffered the scriptures to be turned into gross mockery when he could so easily have refuted his opponents such are the artifices contrived by interpreters who foolishly measure this incomparable mystery of god by their own sense and judgment this doctrine was too harsh for their fine and delicate ears to be considered worthy of our apostle it would however have been more to their honour to bend their own stubbornness in obedience to the spirit of love than to be so completely devoted to their own gross imaginations for the scripture saith paul now comes to the second branch of his subject the rejection of the wicked and as the absurdity appears to be greater in this divine procedure he exerts himself the more to prove that god so far from meriting blame in reprobating whomsoever he chooses displays admirable wisdom and equity paul quotes his testimony from exodus nine sixteen where the lord says he had raised up pharaoh for to show the unconquerable nature of divine power which completely overcame and subdued the egyptian monarch while he obstinately endeavoured to resist the lord of hosts and left an undoubted proof that no human power however great can hold much less break the arm of omnipotence behold a specimen of what the lord willed to be accomplished in pharaoh two things must be here taken into consideration the first the predestination of pharaoh to his destruction which is referred to the just and secret counsel of the lord secondly the end and design intended by it that the name of jehovah may be declared throughout all the earth for if the very hardening of pharaoh was the cause of god's name being declared it is impious to bring any accusation of injustice against infinite holiness many interpreters from a desire to soften this passage corrupt it i observe the word here translated raise thee up means in hebrew made thee stand or appointed thee god was here desirous to show that pharaoh's obstinacy was no obstacle to prevent the deliverance of his people from bondage that his fury was foreseen and plans contrived by the lord of all glory for restraining his violence that god had on purpose raised pharaoh up with the express design of making him a distinguished monument of his insuperable power it is folly to draw any argument from pharaoh's preservation having been continued for a considerable time since the question now under consideration relates to the causes of the commencement of his career many circumstances may befall men from various quarters to retard their counsels and prevent the onward course of their actions but god says pharaoh was raised up by his divine hand and went out from him nay the very character of the egyptian monarch was given him by the lord to prevent the vain imagination that pharaoh had been driven on from heaven by some universal and confused impulse to rush into the fury by which he was actuated the cause or design is specified showing that god had known the conduct pharaoh would adopt and he designedly destined and appointed him for the very use and purpose to which he was devoted the folly of disputing with god is hence apparent as if he was bound to give an account of his conduct 
for he comes forward himself on this occasion anticipates the objection adduced against him declares that reprobates issue from the secret fountain of his providence and wills his name to be declared by them in all the earth therefore on whom he will he hath compassion the conclusion is here drawn with respect both to the elect and the reprobate by the apostle himself for it is impossible to apply it to any other person since in the next sentence he enters into a discussion with his opponent and considers his objections it is therefore undoubted as already hinted that paul speaks his own sentiments in this passage to the following effect god honours with mercy whomsoever he pleaseth according to his own will and strikes with the severity of justice any person whom he chooses paul wishes to satisfy our minds with respect to the diversity of character between the elect and reprobate by considering that it pleased god to enlighten some for salvation and to blind others for destruction nor in our inquiries are we to seek a cause higher than the divine will he does not permit us to go beyond the sentences on whom he will and whom he will the word hardening when attributed to god in scripture not only means permission as some trifling theologians determine but the action of divine wrath for all external circumstances which contribute to blind the reprobates are instruments of the divine indignation satan also himself the internal efficacious agent is so completely the servant of the most high as to act only by his command the frivolous attempt of the schoolman to avoid the difficulty by foreknowledge is completely subverted for paul does not say that the ruin of the wicked is foreseen by the lord but ordained by his counsel decree and will solomon also teaches that the destruction of the wicked was not only foreknown but they were made on purpose for the day of evil proverbs sixteen four thou wilt say then unto me why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will nay but o man who art thou that repliest against god shall the thing formed say to him that formed it why hast thou made me thus hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honour and another unto dishonour thou wilt say therefore the flesh is thrown into great confusion when the destruction of those who are predestinated to death is referred to the will of god the apostle therefore has again recourse to the anticipating of the objections of his opponents for he saw the mouths of the wicked would be all opened to assail with the utmost violence the justice of god and he depicts their feeling with great elegance for not satisfied with defending themselves they arraign god as guilty in their stead and after laying on him the blame of their own damnation display their indignation against his invincible power they are indeed obliged to yield but with murmuring discontent because they are unable to resist his will and while they ascribe power to jehovah advance against him a certain accusation of tyranny in this way the sophists in their schools so prate concerning what they denominate his absolute justice as if forgetful of this his distinguishing attribute he was desirous to make an experiment of the force of his absolute power dominion and authority by throwing all things in a perverse and mischievous manner into one general scene of disorder and confusion thus the wicked reason in this passage what cause has god to be angry with us since he has made us such as we are and drives us where he chooses according to his irresistible nod what does god effect by our ruin and destruction save the avenging of his own work in us it is not for us to wage war with the almighty for though we should resist and oppose him with all our powers he will still gain a complete victory 
our ruin therefore will afford a striking proof of the iniquity of his judgment and his treatment of us is only distinguished by the abuse of his immoderate and unbridled power here paul's answer to these vile accusations nay but o man who art thou who art thou that enterest into a dispute and contention with god paul in his first answer taking his argument from the state and condition of man merely checks the wickedness of the blasphemy of his opponent paul will soon adduce another reason by which he will vindicate the justice of god from every charge paul evidently assigns no cause superior to the will of god paul might easily have answered by showing the difference between the two characters to be founded on just grounds paul might easily have answered by showing the difference between the two characters to be founded on just grounds why then has he not recourse to so compendious a manner of treating his adversaries while he assigns the highest place to the will of god as being in itself sufficient without any addition to stand in the place of all causes paul would not have neglected refuting the objection that god reprobates or elects according to his own will those whom he does not honour with his favour or love gratuitously had he considered it to be false the impious object that men are exempted from guilt if the will of god has the chief part in the salvation of the elect or destruction of the reprobate does paul deny it nay his answer confirms this truth that god determines to do with mankind what he pleases and that men rise up with unavailing fury to contest it since the maker of the world assigns to his creatures by his own right whatever lot he chooses great dishonour is put on the holy ghost by calumniators who assert that paul being unable to answer the objections of his adversaries had recourse to reproach for paul was unwilling to adduce in the beginning arguments which were at hand and calculated to maintain and assert the justice of god because they could not be fully understood nay the apostle so manages his second argument as not to enter into a full defence since he will demonstrate the justice of god to such of us as consider and weigh his evidence with religious humility and reverence he adopts the most suitable plan by admonishing man of his condition to the following effect why should you who are a man and acknowledge yourself to be dust and ashes contend with the lord of infinite honour and glory concerning a subject which you are unable to understand the apostle did not adduce all that could be advanced on this subject but accommodated himself to our ignorance human pride is discontented because paul asserts without assigning a cause that men are rejected or reprobated by the secret counsel of the lord of life as if the silence of the spirit of god arose from an inability to produce a reason does not the spirit of truth admonish us by his silence of the deep reverence with which we ought to adore a mystery that our finite mental faculties cannot comprehend does he not thus curb the vain pride of human curiosity let man therefore learn that the source of all knowledge does not refrain from addressing us on this deep mystery on any other account but the clearness with which he sees that the immensity of his wisdom cannot be comprehended by our limited capacities and in pity to our weakness he invites us to the exercise of modesty and sobriety shall the thing formed etc paul continues to insist on our considering the will of god to be just although the reason may be concealed from our view for paul proves that god is deprived of his right if he does not freely determine concerning his creatures according to his pleasure this may appear harsh to some delicate ears some consider that god is much dishonoured by bestowing upon him such an ultimate will 
is the pride of these divines to be preferred to the simplicity of Paul, who lays it down as a mark of the humility of believers to fix their attention steadily upon the power of an infinite arm, and not limit its operations by their own weak judgment? Hath not the potter power? The reason why the thing formed ought not to contend with him that forms it arises from the latter acting only according to his just right, the word power does not mean that the potter has strength and vigour to act according to an unbridled appetite and desire, but is possessed of a faculty to act with the greatest rectitude. Paul does not wish to confer on the judge of quick and dead an inordinate power, but such as he is justly and deservedly entitled to use. As the potter takes nothing from the clay into whatever form he may mould it, so eternal justice takes nothing from the state and condition in which man was created. We ought, however, never to forget that God is robbed of part of his honour if he does not enjoy such power over man as to be the arbiter of life and death. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endureth with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory? What if? Paul briefly proves in this second answer that, however incomprehensible the counsel of God is in predestination, no more complaints can be made against the destruction of the reprobates than the salvation of the elect. Paul does not assign such a cause for divine election as to give a satisfactory reason for the election of one individual and the reprobation of another for it would have been unworthy of the character of deity to expose to human censure those truths which are concealed in the secret counsel of unerring and infinite wisdom, since no revelation was ever to take place of this inscrutable mystery. The apostle, while he prevents his readers from curiously investigating those subjects which transcend and elude the grasp and range of human intellect, clearly shows that justice alone manifests itself in the predestination of unerring wisdom and holiness. This whole sentence is interrogative, and the following meaning is understood. Who can accuse God of injustice or appoint a day for his trial? In every proceeding of unerring love nothing presents itself to the view of the observer but the strictest rule and principle of justice. In carefully examining the language of Paul, for the purpose of ascertaining his meaning more fully, the following chain of reasoning presents itself. Vessels are prepared that is devoted and destined to destruction, there are also vessels of wrath, namely, made and formed for the very purpose, that they may be proofs of the vengeance and indignation of the Most High. What is there to be blamed in this dispensation of infinite justice, if the Lord bears with them for some time with patience, without immediately inflicting the judgment prepared for them, and thus affords clear proofs of his severity, which are calculated to affright others by such awful examples, while the extent of his mercy to the elect is made more evident by such a procedure in his divine providence. The cause why vessels are fitted for destruction is concealed in the eternal and inscrutable counsel of God, and it becomes the worms of the dust to adore and not to scrutinize the justice of the supreme being. God displays his piety and compassion by the vessels of mercy whom he uses as instruments of his condescending love, the reprobate are vessels of wrath, since they are the servants of the Lord, employed in displaying his judgments. That he might make known the riches. 
Paul here assigns the second reason by which God's glory is manifested in the destruction of the wicked, by which God's glory is manifested in the destruction of the wicked, because the fullness and extent of the divine goodness towards the elect is more clearly and completely confirmed. For in what respect are the elect made to differ from the reprobates, but in their deliverance by the Lord from the same whirlpool of destruction? Nor is this wonderful and miraculous deliverance effected by any peculiar and special merit of their own, but by the gratuitous kindness of all perfect love. We are therefore obliged to praise, in higher strains of exaltation, the immense clemency of sovereign mercy towards the elect, when we have a proper regard to the misery and wretchedness of those reprobates who are overwhelmed by the wrath of infinite purity. Glory means in this passage divine mercy, for the chief praise and honour of the splendour of the Most High consists in acts of kindness. Thus, Ephesians 1, 6 and 13, Paul, after stating we were adopted by God to the praise of the glory of His grace, shortly after adds that we were sealed by the spirit of our inheritance to the praise of His glory, without mentioning grace. Paul, therefore, was desirous to signify that the elect were instruments or organs by which the sovereign disposer of all events exercises His mercy for the purpose of glorifying His name in their actions and conduct. Paul, in this second member of the sentence, more expressly asserts that God prepares the elect for glory when he had before simply stated that the reprobates were vessels prepared for destruction. Both of these preparations depend, without doubt, on the secret counsel of God, for had it not been the case, the apostle would have made the reprobates cast or throw themselves into destruction. He now means their lot was assigned them before their birth. Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom, and been made like unto Gomorrah. Even us whom he hath called. Two consequences follow from the dispute in which Paul has been engaged concerning the liberty of the divine election. First, that the grace of God is not so limited to the Jewish people as to be unable to extend itself to other nations, and to be diffused over the whole world. In the second place, it is not so confined to the Jews as not to reach all the sons of Abraham according to the flesh, without any exception. For if God's election is founded on his good pleasure alone, it exists wherever his will determines to choose. This position concerning election makes way for the observations that are connected both with the calling of the Gentiles and the rejection of the Jews, the former of which was considered as absurd on account of its novelty, the latter appeared altogether unworthy of the divine character. He treats of the calling of the Gentiles first, because it was not calculated to cause so much offence as the rejection of the Israelites. Paul says, Vessels of the mercy of God, which he hath chosen for the glory of his name, are selected equally from Gentiles and Jews. The relative whom, though Paul does not strictly adhere to grammatical accuracy, implies that we are the vessels of the glory of God, who are taken partly from the Jews and partly from the Gentiles. Paul here, from the calling of Jehovah, proves that God makes no difference of nation in his election. For, 
if our descent from the gentiles did not prevent god from calling us it is evident the heathens were not debarred from the kingdom of god and the covenant of eternal salvation as he saith also in hosea paul now says that the calling of the gentiles ought not to be regarded as a new thing since the prophet hosea had foretold it hosea two twenty three long before see one peter two ten paul's reasoning is very plain the only difficulty consists in the application of the prophecy for there can be no doubt that hosea was speaking concerning the jews in this passage for jehovah being offended with them on account of their crimes threatens that they shall no longer be his people he afterwards comforts them and says to those who were not his people thou art my people and to those who were not beloved thou art my beloved paul endeavours to apply this prophecy which belonged expressly to the jews to the gentiles paul according to the best explanation of this difficulty hitherto given reasons in the following manner the jewish nation had experienced the same impediments against their becoming partakers of salvation which had befallen the heathens as god therefore formerly had kindly received into his favour the jews whom he had rejected and banished from their land so he now shows the same kindness to the gentiles although this interpretation can be vindicated yet it appears to be forced and i propose the following which i consider better suited to the passage that the consolation afforded the jews by the prophet applies with equal propriety to the gentiles for it is neither new unusual nor unreasonable for the prophets after they have proclaimed the inflicting of god's vengeance on the jews because of their crimes to direct their attention to the kingdom of christ which was to be propagated over the whole earth for when the jews had so provoked the anger of god by their sins as to deserve to be rejected by him no hope of salvation remained except in their conversion to christ by whom the covenant of grace is renewed and as it was first founded so it is now restored in him after it has been lost since also christ is the undoubted and only refuge when affairs are in a desperate state no solid lasting comfort can be bestowed on wretched sinners who feel the anger of god to be suspended over their heads but in the offer of jesus christ it is as we have stated usual for the prophets after humbling a people who have been sore amazed and thoroughly affrighted by the threatenings of divine indignation to recall them to christ the only sanctuary and place of refuge for desperate offenders wherever the kingdom of christ is erected that heavenly city jerusalem is at the same time built to which citizens flock from all parts of the world this was particularly the case in this prophecy for since the jews were banished from the family of god they were brought down to a level with the rest of mankind and only equal to the gentiles it hence follows that the prophecy of hosea is well suited to the present instance for god declares after he has brought the jews to the same standard with the gentiles he will collect a church from among strangers and say to them who were not his people thou shalt be my people them my people which were not my people god had now divorced his people and so deprived them of all their dignity as to leave them in no respect superior to the rest of the gentiles who were aliens from the commonwealth of israel and although those whom god has destined to himself as sons by his eternal counsel continue always sons yet the scripture frequently does not reckon them among the children of their heavenly father unless their election has been proved and supported by their calling we are hence taught that we should not form our judgment much less pronounce our opinion concerning the election of god except so far as he manifests himself by his own undoubted signs thus after paul had pointed out to the ephesians that their election and adoption had been predestinated by god before the foundation of the world 
Ephesians 2.1, he not long after testifies their former alienation from the Most High, namely during the period when Jehovah had not yet manifested his own love to them, although he would finally fold them in the arms of his eternal mercy. In this place, therefore, those are called not beloved, to whom the eternal justice of the Lord gives proofs of his indignation rather than love. Moreover, it is certain truth that the wrath of infinite holiness rests upon the whole race of mankind until the Lord has reconciled them to himself by adoption. The feminine gender is used here according to the context of the passage in Hosea, for he had said a daughter was born to him and God called her name not beloved, and testified by this type that he would no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, who would thus be compelled to acknowledge themselves hated of the Lord. As rejection was the cause of the divine hatred, so the adoption of those, Hosea 1.10, who had been strangers for a time, was, according to the prophet, the commencement of the love of their heavenly Father. Isaiah also crieth. Paul now goes to the second part of his subject, and he was desirous to avoid it, lest he should exasperate the minds of his countrymen. Paul intentionally introduces Isaiah crying, not speaking, for the purpose of exciting greater attention. The words of the prophet, Isaiah 10.21, are manifestly designed to prevent the Jews from boasting too much in the flesh. The statement is awful that a small number only out of so large a multitude shall obtain salvation. For the prophet, after describing the destruction and desolation of the Jewish people, although to prevent believers from considering the covenant of God to be entirely annihilated, he leaves them some hope still remaining of grace, yet he confines it to a very few. But since the prophet made this prediction concerning his own time, we must consider how Paul can properly suit it to his own purpose. But since the prophet made this prediction concerning his own time, we must consider how Paul can properly suit it to his own purpose. The apostle states, when the Lord was desirous to deliver his people from the Jewish captivity, he determined that the benefit of this deliverance should be extended only to a very few out of that immense crowd of people who justly deserve to be called the remnant of destruction, when compared with the great number of the people that he suffered to perish in exile. This carnal restoration of the Jews to their own land prefigured, nay, was the beginning of the true renewal of the Church of God, which is accomplished in Christ. What then happened must now be completed with so much greater certainty in the progress and fulfilment of so glorious a deliverance. For he will finish the work and cut it short, the true sense, omitting the great variety of interpretations, seems to be the following. The Lord will so shorten and cut off his people that the remnant will have the appearance of a certain wasting and consumption, and present the similitude and vestige of an immense ruin. The small number that shall remain after the consumption will be the work of the righteousness of the Lord, or rather serve to testify his righteousness through the whole world. Some interpreters, earnestly desirous to display their philosophical acuteness, have imagined the doctrine of the gospel to be called a consummation, which is the meaning of one of the expressions in Isaiah, because it abrogates the ceremonial rites, and therefore deserves to be considered a compendious abridgment of the law. The gospel, in my opinion, ought to be regarded as the finishing and consumption of the law. The Greek translator has not only mistaken the sense of this passage, but of Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, chapter 28, verse 22, and Ezekiel 11:13, where the prophet says, according to that version, O Lord God, wilt thou perfectly complete the remnant of Israel, although the following is the real meaning of the passage, wilt thou bring to utter destruction the remnant of Israel. 
This has arisen from inattention to the ambiguity of the original word, which means both to complete and to destroy. Isaiah uses two substantive nouns, consumption and determination, or declaration, and the Septuagint has displayed a very striking and unreasonable affectation of the Hebrew phraseology. For what occasion was there to involve a sentence sufficiently clear of itself by an obscure figure? Isaiah also speaks hyperbolically in this instance by calling consumption a diminishing, which takes place in the case of any remarkable overthrow. And as Isaiah said before, the prophet, Isaiah 1.9, deplores in this passage the devastation of Israel during his own life. The destruction of the Jewish people, therefore, is no new event and unprecedented example, for the nation of the Israelites can lay claim to no other prerogative but what they derive from their parents, who had on former occasions experienced the severe trials and howling tempests of affliction in so striking a manner, according to the evangelical prophet Isaiah, that they had nearly become as Sodom and like unto Gomorrah. The difference was that a very small number was preserved as seed to prevent the entire extinction of the very name of Israel, by blotting them out with an everlasting forgetfulness and oblivion, for God was obliged to be always mindful of his promise, and to manifest an abiding sense of mercy amidst the severest punishments. What shall we say, then, that the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but, as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling-stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling-stone and rock of offence, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. What shall we say, then? The apostle, that he may leave the Jews no occasion for complaints and murmuring against God, begins by pointing out reasons adapted to the human capacity why the Jewish nation had been thus cast off by the Lord of hosts. Those interpreters act with great folly, and invert the whole order of the divine procedure, who endeavour to establish and advance such causes above the secret predestination of God, which ought, as Paul has already taught us, to be considered the greatest and highest of all causes. As predestination is superior to all other causes, so the depravity, profligacy, and abandoned wickedness of the impious afford ground and supply materials for the judgment of unerring rectitude. Since, therefore, the subject was difficult, Paul has recourse to consultation, as if he proposed a question in consequence of his doubting what could be said on the point under discussion, that the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, nothing appeared more absurd and inconsistent than that the Gentiles, who wallowed in all the wantonness of fleshly indulgences, without paying the least attention to justice, should be invited to a participation of salvation, and to the obtaining of righteousness, while, on the other hand, the Jews, who had devoted themselves with great zeal and ardour to the works of the law, should be driven away from all the rewards and enjoyments of righteousness. Paul makes a simple and unvarnished statement of the reason of this uncommon paradox, refrains from all harshness of expression calculated to exasperate the Jews, and shows that the righteousness unto which the Gentiles attained consisted in faith, and depended therefore on the mercy of God, not any peculiar dignity in man. The apostle proves the zeal of the law which influenced the mind and conduct of the Jews to be preposterous, since they were earnestly labouring to be justified by works, and striving to attain an eminence that no child of Adam could reach. Besides this circumstance they stumbled at Christ, 
who alone opens a door for the attainment of righteousness. The design of the apostle in the first member of this sentence was to exalt the mere grace in favour of God, that no other cause might be sought for in the calling of the Gentiles, save the favour with which the preserver of all mankind vouchsafed to embrace those who were utterly unworthy of so great a blessing. Paul expressly calls it the righteousness of Jehovah, from which alone salvation springs, and he intimates that the righteousness of the heathens consists in gratuitous reconciliation, when he states that it emanates from faith. Every divine who imagines that the Gentiles are justified because they have obtained the spirit of regeneration by means of faith entirely mistakes the mind and sentiments of Paul, for there would have been no truth in their apprehending that they did not seek, unless God had embraced them in his gratuitous love, when straying and wandered from all the paths of truth and peace, and offered them a righteousness which was utterly impossible for the Gentiles to pursue with any ardour or zeal, since it was unknown to them and could not therefore flourish with any vigour. It must also be carefully observed that the Gentiles obtained righteousness only by faith, because the Father of lights prevented their faith by his own grace and favour. For had the heathens by means of their faith aspired first after righteousness, they would in that case have followed after this inestimable gift. Faith, therefore, itself is a part and portion of divine grace. But Israel which followed Paul freely acknowledges what appeared incredible, that we need not be astonished to find the Jews accomplish nothing by their strenuous and vigorous pursuit of righteousness, because, by running out of their way, they wearied themselves to no purpose. I consider Paul, in the first part of this verse, to have meant, by the law of righteousness, the righteousness of the law, and in conclusion of the sentence he repeats the same words in a different sense, understanding them to import the form or rule of righteousness. The sum of the whole is, that Israel, by following after the law of righteousness, had not attained the true manner of righteousness which is prescribed in the law. Paul uses an elegant figure of speech when he states that legal righteousness was the cause why the Jews attained not the law of righteousness. Not by faith, but, as it were, by works. Paul justly points out the rejection of those who endeavour to obtain salvation by the confidence of works, since the rash and ruinous zeal of the supporters of merits is generally considered to be well founded, without reflecting that they do everything in their power entirely to destroy and abolish faith, without which no salvation can be expected. Should they gain their point, all true righteousness would be forever annihilated. Paul, it is evident, institutes a comparison between faith and the merit of works, as being entirely contrary in their nature, qualities, and tendency. Since, therefore, the confidence of works blocks up more than anything else our way to the attainment of righteousness, it is necessary for us to bid an eternal adieu to all works, and to lean and place our reliance upon the alone source of all perfection. This example of the Jews is well calculated to affrighten all those who labour to obtain the kingdom of God by works, for we have already proved that Paul does not call ceremonial observances the works of the law. The apostle opposes faith to the merit of works, and keeps both his eyes directed, with the most unvarying attention, to the alone clemency of the supreme being, without casting a single glance towards their own proper merit. For they stumbled at that stumbling-stone. Christ is given us for righteousness, and every human being who obtrudes the righteousness of works upon God endeavours to deprive his only Saviour of his office. What greater absurdity can be imagined than to expect to obtain righteousness by merit, which leaves the sinner no hopes of pardon? It is an undoubted truth that all men who rely upon the confidence derived from works under the vain pretense of showing an ardent zeal for righteousness 
wage war with the most holy Lord God with all the fury of madness. It is easily known how the confiders in works stumble at Christ, for if we do not acknowledge our own sinfulness, our utter want of personal righteousness and poverty with respect to works of our own, we obscure the dignity of Christ, which consists in his being the light, salvation, life, resurrection, righteousness, and medicine of all believers. Why is he possessed of all these honours but to enjoy the power of giving sight to the blind, salvation to the condemned, life to the dead, resurrection to dust and ashes, pardon of sins to the most abandoned, health and cure of disease to bodily sickness, and the most complicated maladies? Nay, if we arrogate any righteousness to ourselves, we struggle in some measure with the power of Christ, since his office consists as much in breaking down and humbling all the pride of the flesh, as in assisting, giving rest, and affording comfort to those who are weary and heavy laden. This passage is properly quoted, for God threatens, Isaiah 8.14, that he will be a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offence, to both the houses of Israel, for a gin, and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem since christ himself is the very god who spoke by the prophet we need not be surprised to find it fulfilled in him when paul calls christ a rock of offence he informs us we need not be surprised to find the stumblers at this rock from perverse obstinacy making no progress in the way of righteousness since they altogether despised the road pointed out and made easy to them by the lord of all flesh christ is not of himself and in his own proper character a stone of stumbling he is so from accident in consequence of the depravity of man, as the apostle afterwards proves. And whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. Paul added this quotation from Isaiah 28.16 for the comfort of the pious, as if he had said, We believers need not be afraid or overwhelmed with fear instead of confidence, because Christ is termed the stone of stumbling, since, while he is laid down as a rock for the ruin of unbelievers who stumble against him, he proves to be the life and resurrection of the pious. The Messiah is, according to prediction, an offence and scandal to rebels and unbelievers, but a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation to all the pious. And all who rely on him shall not make haste. Paul, following the Septuagint, translates it, shall not be ashamed, and Peter, 1 Peter, chapter 2 verse 2, gives the version shall not be confounded instead of shall not make haste. End of section 14